the first controversy we ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous before we were even called Alcoholics Anonymous is whether or not to have a book. That was a controversy. Like things that we take very much for granted were controversial. It was a huge change and people were very afraid of it. Then the traditions were controversial. Oh my God, the General Service Conference, one of the most controversial things. I I heard heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collective voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Hiya, Sam. When the big book says, in no time at all, we were boiled as an owl, what do you think of? Hmm. That time I completed a jag in Professor Langley's flying machine? Oh, yeah, back when we were subjects of king alcohol, shivering denizens in his mad realm. That's all right out of the big book. (laughs) It certainly is. There's some flowery language in there. Well, I love the language. I love all those odd expressions. Oh, man, I know you do. (laughs) On the carpet, slippers in a bottle. (laughs) But I had trouble with a lot of the language when I first came in. Well, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I love about the home group that you and I used to share, um, still your home group, was the the dictionary that the group kept for the meeting that was from 1929, I think. Yeah. Because it was definitions of words and terms used in the big book. And the dictionary was from that era, too. From the same era. Because there are some stuff that's said in there that doesn't mean what I thought it meant if I knew what it meant at all. Yeah. And so the literature has been updated from time to time since it well, was written. I mean, you know. Yeah, but not the first 164. The, well, they ended up writing the big book because they felt like it was all word of mouth recovery. And they mm-hmm. felt like what we need to do is write this down so that if we're not here then someone will be able to get sober and they'll have our experience. So they wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, and it really worked well because initially the books were mailed out to people who had no one around to talk with about what was in the book. Right. Um, And they got sober. And and one of the things that has really become a, a big thing, particularly during this period that we've been dealing with COVID, that's accessibility. Mm-hmm. Zoom itself has has so greatly increased the accessibility of Alcoholics Anonymous to people because issues with mobility, issues with hearing, issues with all kinds of things have allowed people to be able to actually participate because of the technology that's been introduced during the pandemic. But accessibility is also another thing. What about being able to understand what's written? We yeah, and that's always been the case. The idea was, can the stuff that's written down get across how we stay sober? So the language has changed over the years. How does it happen that the language in the big book or all the pamphlets and all that, how does that change? I'm so glad you asked, Don. (laughs) I knew you would be. (laughs) Bill and Dr. Bob used to be the leaders of AA. They turned it over to all the members of AA, and that became the General Service Conference. That's 93 area delegates and others, and they are responsible for our literature and many other things. 
The last time they met was in 2021, and this is one of the things they approved. A draft version of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, fourth edition, will be translated into plain and simple language and be developed in a way that's accessible and relatable to as wide an audience as possible, and that a progress report or draft be brought back to the 2022 Conference Committee on Literature, which is this year. April. And it's, yeah, it's coming soon. So this episode is going to be tense. Yeah, well, not. It's not tense like intense. It's maybe like tense, tense like oh, past tense, you know, future, maybe. future past perfect present tense. Isn't <laughs> that one? <laughs> we have two guests who uh, will banter about the controversial topic. Should the language be updated in the big book? Then to wrap up, we will have a representative from the AA General Service Conference Literature Committee to let us know how you, our listeners, can let your opinions be heard. Don, are you ready for this? Helmet, check, gloves, check, and <laughs> ready for battle. <laughs> then it's time for controversy. Today's topic, should the language be updated in Big Book? Welcome, Chess. Hey, Sam. And welcome, Jackie. Hello, good to be here. Jackie, when did you get sober? My sobriety date is June 28th. 2006, though it was not my first time walking in the doors. Uh, the first time I went on the recovery journey, as it were, was Valentine's Day 2006. Um, and shortly within a day or two, I went to my first meeting and then it stuck from June 28th. Well, what was going on inside of you the last time that you came into AA? that you decided that you were going to do something as crazy as commit to this thing and get sober somebody else's way. What was going on with me? I was really scared. I mm -hmm. think like a lot of us, I was scared of living without alcohol and, and the things that I was doing to just barely get by. I was also scared of continuing to live with alcohol and the way that things were going. And I was also scared of being in the rooms as well. So uh, my first couple of meetings, I, I did not feel home or safe. It took a little while until I found a, a home group that I mm -hmm. really resonated with. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what really helped it. Did you identify with what people were talking about when you first came in? Or was it just, I got to do, I don't know what's going on here. I don't get any of this, but I've got to quit drinking. I came in through getting my, my slip signed through a treatment program. I think my first couple of meetings wasn't really a good indication of what AA can be like for many of us. A lot of my first meetings were like the convenient meetings that we were either held in the treatment center itself or held at like a local clubhouse down the street, you know, um, where a bunch of us would go after treatment together. And it wasn't until I ventured way out into the Mission District of San Francisco that I found uh, an AA group full of misfits <laughs> and <laughs> punk rockers and tattooed freaks and queer people and, and people that I would drink with, frankly. Um, when there I you go. Back. Yeah. My yeah, kind yeah. of people. Yeah, my kind of people. I and mean, they're they, still alcoholics. They're just recovering alcoholics. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and they kind of uh, broke apart a lot of the old ideas I had about 
AA and the and especially the the ideas I had about people who got together in a room and talked about higher power <laughs> and God because I came in as a secular Jew, right, a twenty seven okay. year old secular Jew, and so um, coming into a room and seeing the word God and especially referred to as he and him, it was really scary for me. You know, I mean, I went to a, a Jewish school from first through eighth grade, and and you know we spoke in Hebrew, right? So even referring to God in English, let alone praying with non-Jews, was <laughs> very scary um, for me. Scary in what way? Well, I mean, I think like a lot of people, um, my experience of, like I said, I just, I didn't spend time with people outside of a religious context talking about higher power, right? So it was my experience of my religion kind of growing up was very cultural and very contained within certain spaces, like a synagogue or a religious class. And so for me, it was very strange to walk into a setting in which I thought I was going to be recovering from a mental or physical illness or an addiction. And then people are talking to me about a higher power. Um, And then surprise. Yeah. And the literature is referring to that higher power as God or father, heavenly father, which I'm also the child of Holocaust survivors. So my father was in a ghetto and and my mother ran into Russia. Um, I had a great uncle who was liberated from Auschwitz. So there was also an element of, you know, a very, I think, fear that maybe there was something else at play in this organization and that Um, you know i remember thinking am i you know uh, someone going to try to convert me right mm -hmm. yeah it was just a a cultural the language a lot of things were i had ideas like i said i like to use the word prejudice like old ideas a prejudgment about Mm -hmm. um, that's the word in the big book bill talks a lot about you know letting go of our prejudices about uh, spiritual language. And so my prejudice is my old ideas about spiritual language is I associated certain words with certain religions. And as someone with parents and, and relatives who were persecuted for being a different religion from that dominant thing, it was scary. And it felt almost a little bit like it could be a betrayal. So I, I was very careful you know, um, and it wasn't until I went into a room where it was very clear that everyone had a different conception of a higher power, that it wasn't associated with a specific religion. A lot of people used the present moment as their higher power in my home group that I went to. Yes, yes. One guy was a punk rocker who used a Norse god as his higher very power. Very cool. Very right? cool. So. Well, I mean, what you're describing there is is one of the things that I'm glad that I heard early on in the rooms, and that was to go to different meetings. And the other thing that I heard was to give a meeting more than one visit because even meetings have bad days. Mm. You know, every now and then, even today, I have to shake things up and go check out other meetings. That's right. That's just fascinating. I've got so much to say about that. But who among us came into AA and didn't have preconceived ideas about what Mm. AA is? Chess, tell us, uh, when did you get sober? Um, well, first of all, I could sit and listen to Jackie talk about this all day because I just find it fascinating and with my background that we'll get to at some point. So um, I got sober for the first time in 1991. Um, I was sober for uh, probably four months. And at that time, I avoided people like the plague. I, I would go to a meeting, uh, get there on time, and I would leave 
on time. I did not want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to get to know anybody because you all weren't like me and I was different. Um, imagine that. That was the first time I got sober. I met somebody, fell in love and started drinking right away. So four months into it. So that's the cautionary tale about not dating in your first, or drinking in your first year. <laughs> yeah, both of them, both of them are friends. Both of those were a good idea. <laughs> Stay out of the relationship zone for a little bit. But the good news is that relationship continued from that point on. We just drank for 10 years solid. Mm, um, 10 years. Yeah, from 92 to 2002. And I remember the weekend and the day vividly that I got sober. And like when I think about my deepest thoughts about myself, there was never any question in my mind that I was an alcoholic. That was never something that I wondered about. I knew that I was an alcoholic. But when I came into the program in 2002, it was like a relief because I finally was able to like let all that go and just be an alcoholic, but in recovery. <laughs> and it was such a relief to, to walk into a meeting that the first meeting I walked into, I didn't know there were women's meetings. And I went to a women's meeting by accident and they saw what a mess I was and invited me to stay. And, you know, for me, this, the, the image of that is me crawling up on the, the middle of the conference room table and being surrounded by amazing women who just loved me for an hour and took care of me. I mean, I, it, I felt like I was in the fetal position for an hour. Um, I left that meeting and I knew that I'd gone to the right place. I was doing the right thing. So that was sort of the start of my recovery journey. What's some place that as you got into working the steps, mm -hmm. being an AA, what's some place where AA was asking you to do something that seemed crazy and you just surrendered and did it, even though you had no confidence? I think when I came back, to be honest, I, I, I had confidence because I saw people doing it. I, I really felt like, okay, this works because I see all these people and they're doing it. And I didn't have any, op the options were gone. Like I knew I was an alcoholic. There just weren't other options. So what I remember about being difficult was, well, first of all, trusting people. It was very hard for me to think that I was going to do a fifth step with someone mm -hmm. who wasn't going to betray me or in some form or fashion, my stuff wasn't going to be broadcast uh, around the group or the community. This is back to trust, exactly what Jackie was talking about. And we, yeah. we all have to deal with it. You know, I just had to do it. I mean, I had to do the first four steps and I had to trust that doing it was going to get me somewhere. If I could just listen to my sponsor and do what he told me to do, then maybe I would feel like a human again. Uh, or maybe even for the first time. But my early childhood, the way I grew up, I didn't trust people. My mother, lovely person, always went through my stuff. And she wouldn't tell me. She would just like one day say, oh, yeah, I found your weed like six months later. Or I would tell my <laughs> brothers something. I would tell them something that was really important to me. And I'd say, please don't tell mom or dad or whatever. You know, a year later, I'd find out my parents knew because my brothers told them immediately. So. Like that's trust. And I, I couldn't trust people. Yeah. So doing the four step and then sitting down with somebody and trusting them was scary for me. So for me, trusting men was difficult. And it wasn't because they were men. I just had better relationships with women mm -hmm. uh, most of my life as a gay man. 
women were more trustworthy to me. It was hard for me to change that. And I did it in AA. And what an amazing gift that has been to have gay, straight, bi, whatever kind of queer friends who were just trustworthy. And what happened out of that was I became trustworthy, uh, which was never something I thought I would be, really. Yeah, that's great. So today we're talking about, should the language be updated in the big book? So Chess, what's your relationship to the big book now? Yeah, I'm holding it. So right now, I have a very good relationship with it. (laughs) Um, I have my old big book, which is, you know, torn to pieces and scribbled in. And I actually had to have a book binder rebind it for me. In the meantime, I got a new book, which I hate because it doesn't have my notes in it, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) My relationship to the big book is when I am in a meeting and we read the 12 steps and I hear all the male, the pronoun language with God and just in general, it tweaks me a little bit. Like I've been to meetings where the person reading them changed the pronouns. Instead of saying he, they just say God. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, wow, that's so good. And I have a degree in divinity. You know, it's sort of sad that AA is a little behind the eight ball in terms of changing language. My church tradition has changed God language away from male-centered or paternal sort of language to, if you're talking about God, you just say God. But I feel like AA is such an open organization and welcoming organization. It is like the church in that it struggles to accept any kind of change because it feels like if it gives a little bit, there's a slippery slope. Well, and also all change has to come from a very large group of people. I've heard in AA change happens at the speed of trust and that's very slow. But Chess, so you also work with young people Mm -hmm. in a professional capacity as well. So you see a lot of college students. What's their reaction to the big book? Yeah, similarly, I think we have a lot of young people who are not churched now. So God language really pisses them off. Mm. I think like Jackie and her background, you know, hearing that language is off-putting. Um, what I hear from young people all the time is it's a bunch of old people. It doesn't even matter that there's a bunch of old people. It's the language they're hearing and language is important. And they hear that language and it sounds old. Mm. And there are some things in the big book that read poorly in our culture today. I work in a university. So in that setting, I have a lot of students who are really thinking about where they are in the world. When they come to these groups and then they hear the language of certain steps, even They go, oh, so there's like no other way to get around this except to do it this way, which of course we've said for years, yeah, you can do it this way, try it this way. But the language, it's not that that they're hearing. They're hearing things like students are talking about ways that the language of the big book sounds like passive aggressive or gaslighting language that they've heard in their lives. Mm. And that's very difficult to read. And it's Not that it's wrong in the book. It's just that it's difficult in the context of our culture now. It's the way it's said. That's, I have not heard that statement in Mm. anything that speaks to that at all. But, you know, one of the things that has popped into my mind is attraction rather than promotion. And if what we are putting out right now or what we put out decades ago that we're still using today is not attractive then maybe there's something we should look at there. So let's get Jackie in here. Jackie, what's your relationship to the big book? Well, I too am currently holding it. 
<laughs> Although I, I do need um, Chess's recommendation for a book finder because it is probably about time. Mine really- is loose leaf, I hate to say. <laughs> <laughs> My relationship to the big book currently, I work with sponsees. If I'm working with someone who's new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I work out of the big book with them, depending on what's going on with them, maybe at various speeds. So I get the experience of reading the book, depending on the literacy level of the person I'm working with will also affect the way we read the book together. Reading the big book with a sponsee, it it can be a joy, although there's a lot of decoding. I'm a, a very literate person. I have a very good reading comprehension and, and I've had some very good teachers in terms of, I've had a sponsor, but actually when I worked the steps, my first sponsor, my big mama sponsor is what I call her because she's the sponsor (laughs) who took me through all 12 steps. We worked out of the 12 and 12, Hmm. but then I became a part of a back to basics group and there was a very intense big book study and I listened to the Joe and Charlie tapes. And so I decided to start working with my sponsors out of the big book. So uh, I enjoy the experience of working one-on-one with sponsees, working out of the book. That's the way we stay sober. (laughs) Now, you know, that's the fundamental uh, principle of AA. Yes. Working with others or being of service and helping others find sobriety. I agree. Uh, It happens to be the way that I often work the steps with sponsees is out of the book. I have also worked out of other literature with other sponsees, usually people who have been in program for a while and have only worked out of the book with a, I have an, a sponsee who's an atheist right now. And so we are working with non-conference literature because they've never had the experience of working the steps with language that really speaks to them as an atheist. And it's a good experience for me. I'm also currently a district committee member chair, which is in the California Northern coastal area. So my relationship to the book as a trusted servant, you know, that's a different kind of relationship than as an individual member working one-on-one. Then when I think about the book, I think about issues of accessibility, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. although I'm primarily there to facilitate a group conscience, you know, particularly around these agenda items for the general service conference that often come up around the big book and, and changes to the big book. And there have been discussions about plain and simple language, big book since panel 65. And there have been discussions about changes to the big book, historically speaking. I'm also a student of AA history and a researcher of AA history. And so then I have a relationship to the big book based on my interest in history as yes. well. You know, one of the things that stands out to me in that statement that we read from the final conference report from last year, a draft version of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, fourth edition, be translated into plain and simple language, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. This is not replacing the big book. This is not replacing the book that we know. It's another translation. There are so many other translations of the big book into languages around the world. This is simply translating the big book into the modern English language. It's in addition to I'm fascinated by translations of our big book into other languages. The translation of the big book into American Sign Language, too, is is really eye-opening. And actually, the need for a plain and simple English-written version of the big book, a lot of folks don't realize that English as a written language is is often a second language to deaf alcoholics. And deaf members were saying, we really want to study the big book with our sponsees, but the way it's written right now, it's not really possible to have that kind of sponsorship experience with 
the written book when you're trying to work with a sponsee in American Sign Language. So it's fascinating. But the thing about foreign language translations, you know, this book has been translated into 72 other languages, I believe at this point, 71 or 72. And some of the history of those translations, they really tried to have a very formal version of an older style of that language. For example, I believe the first Japanese translation was a very formal version of Japanese. And then later mm-hmm. on, their second edition, they decided to, to switch to a more vernacular language. Yeah, so look at the Bible. It's kind of like the old language sounds better. I met someone from Iceland who is a part of a big book study and using the Icelandic big book, right? It was a real eye-opening moment because the person was like, the idea that you would have to use a dictionary while reading the book, especially while reading it with a newcomer or sponsee, it was, it seemed bizarre to him that why would you need a dictionary to read the book. And so suddenly realizing that there are people using translations of the book all around the world and not needing to pull out a dictionary, (laughs) it makes you suddenly ask yourself, oh, why is this something that's so normalized in the United States and English speaking countries? So what is the argument for not changing the big book? The arguments that I've often heard, it's written in one of the foreword. This book has helped so many people that there's a deep affection and also the fact that it has been helpful to so many people that that's the reason why it hasn't been changed. There are some people who are afraid that by changing it, one might dilute it. There is people mentioned the slippery slope argument. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll let Chess speak after this. But my favorite reason that someone mentioned during a sharing session I was facilitating on changing the first 164 pages was that this person was sober for 30 years. He was Irish too. So he was a part of our wonderful Irish group in San Francisco, Serenity Shamrocks, (laughs) (laughs) which is a great name. And he said, I've been sober for 30 years and I've read this book for 30 years and I always find something new in it. So part of the density and the richness of the language and even to some degree, the kind of weird twisting circular way that Bill W. wrote, while it is difficult for newcomers to read, and I think that's a very important point, it does lend itself to long-term study and to discoveries that can take place over the course of decades of sobriety. And that is a lovely, beautiful thing that gives it a timelessness in the same way that Shakespeare is dense and can be difficult to read, but there's something always to discover. My one question to pose though, is do we want a CPR guide written in iambic pentameter? Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what is the purpose of the book? Is it a basic text to show anyone anywhere how to recover in clear-cut writing? Or is it a historical text that is rich and dense and meant to be studied intimately over three decades? Chess, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think Jackie really explained beautifully some of my thoughts as well. Again, back to my education, when I think about reading Hebrew scripture in Hebrew versus reading it in King James Version, it's a very different thing. And it loses nuance in many places in that way. It's the reason we have some difficulties in the church these days is because some of the translations and some of the things that are said in Old Testament scripture or Hebrew scripture it causes controversy because of the way it's written. So I didn't take Hebrew in divinity school and I was able to avoid Greek as well. (laughs) 
I've managed to avoid it my whole life. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I wish that I had taken it sometimes because I think that the beauty of, of the original is why it's so amazing. I draw a connection between scripture and Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book because we call it the big book, because we think of it in the same way. And I think in the same way that with religious sort of dogma and the way we look at changing things, if we're not careful, we will lose the context of what it's trying to say to our culture or the new culture won't hear it. The new people who are reading it, you know, for example, not to advocate for anybody's books, but Russell Brand's book, Recovery, and I just read it in the last two or three years, for me was really transformational in the way I saw the steps anew. I saw them in a new way. And mm -hmm. while, you know, the language is a little, like if, you, if I read the steps right now, you guys are gonna have to bleep me out every step. <laughs> it's a little salty. <laughs> It's a little salty, yes, but it's beautiful in, in the way he, he writes the steps and the way he talks about the steps for himself. And I think that's really important for us to see. I personally, when I read a um, translation of scripture that's very contemporary, I get a little hinky about it too. So if that tells you anything, you know, it's like I want to have something in between so that I hear it the same way. So I think that's where the difficulty is going to come for translating. And again, with what Jackie said, there are so many translations already out there. We know that in translation, certain nuances are lost. So, you know, for me, I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, we really want to do this because it will impact new people. I don't see where it hurts anybody. Is it worth the language being the hindrance to someone getting sober? Because, you know, Don and I read the big book and we kind of understand the language. Every once in a while we say, I wonder what that means. Carpet slippers. Who wear, What's a carpet slipper? <laughs> yeah. I mean, silly stuff like that, though. But what if it was language that we understood straight away and it wasn't a thing that I went, oh, my God, this is so antiquated. And the science around substance use disorders and addiction is moving along. And it's we're learning new things about it. We're learning that it's, yeah, it's a disease, but it affects biology, it, it affects our psychology, it affects our the social situations we're in, it affects us, the um, spiritual way we approach the world. So when you think about all of those sort of context, I think it'd be wise to have a version that was a contemporary version. I, I would enjoy it. But keep the original manuscript, the original yeah. 164 yeah. pages, yeah. and have something else. Who's, we don't need to have a book-burning party, for crying out loud. No, because, no, no, no. I mean, how many big books do I have on my shelf anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got sober with the, the fourth edition of the big book. When I read the book, when I read the 12 and 12 as well, and when I go to meetings, I hear with a filter, if you will. My own little translator is working. I've already gotten the results of this program. And so it's easy to be blind to the language that's being used because I have got my own conceptions that I'm applying when I hear these things and I, it's not an obstacle. But what if I didn't have that translation? Perhaps the plain language version is that path to studying the original language yes. once someone quote unquote gets it. Yes. My sponsor put a little earwig in my ear and it now translates everything that I hear in AA into language I can tolerate. <laughs> when the book was written, published in 1939, 
it was difficult to read back then. You know, something a lot of folks don't realize is that the book was almost at a college reading level even back then. And that's why in the early 40s, Dr. Bob asked an Akron, I believe he was a newspaper writer, but an Akron member named Evan to write a series of pamphlets. And now they're known as the Akron pamphlets. But Dr. Bob felt that there needed to be some supplemental literature that was accessible to working class alcoholics that he was trying to help. And then Similarly, there was a book, The Little Red Book, came out mm-hmm. in the mid-40s as well. And then Chicago had pamphlets. And then all the San Quentin AA group had uh, an interpretation in a simple language that they actually published themselves for the members who were getting sober in San Quentin and the San Quentin AA group. And the general service office called these can openers. And the idea oh. is that they would make it easy to open. It was a way to broaden the doorway for entry to people. And to remember the purpose of the book was that anyone anywhere could use this book and and be able to use the methods, have a consistent message of how to get sober so that it wouldn't be a word of mouth program. However, if the language has gotten to the point that it requires a sponsor to help someone new be able to read and access the message, then we are once again a word of mouth program. And now the message is no longer in the book, the message is now in sponsors, in big book study guides. And so therefore we've gotten away from what even the book itself tells us is its original purpose. Oh, wow. That, I mean, that we could go and turn this into a two hour podcast because yeah. um, I am totally nerding out on what you guys are sharing, but we got to wrap it up. Yeah. Jackie and Chess, thank you so much for joining us today. And stay tuned for a statement from the Literature Committee. My name is Deb Kay. I'm an alcoholic from Durham, North Carolina, and I currently serve as the chair of the Trustees Literature Committee and am a member of the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's my great privilege to be serving AA in this way. It's a really, really exciting time because we are involved in a few different things that will hopefully help us to continue to carry the life-saving message of AA to any alcoholic who may need it. Three initiatives, um, I'll take them in turn. One is people will be very excited to hear that we've begun the development of the fifth edition of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. The exciting thing about that is that there's going to be a call for stories. We will be casting the net very wide and inviting people from fellowships to submit stories about what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. It's a multi-year process. It typically takes, well, three to five years to put out a new edition. So don't look for it in your home group next week (laughs) or even, even next year, but do keep an ear out for when those announcements come out. So that's the fifth edition of the big book. Again, all three of these initiatives are directed by the conference, which speaks for the fellowship of AA. Um, And I think that's really important to recognize. This isn't an office up in New York or a couple of people making these decisions. This is really what the groups have asked us to do. And they've said it's time for a fifth edition and it's time for a fourth edition Spanish big book. And you don't want me to try to say the title in Spanish. It it just won't come out well. (laughs) 
And then the third plain language translation of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, was uh, requested and very strongly affirmed at the last general service conference. The idea behind the plain language translation is to take the life-saving message of Alcoholics Anonymous and to translate it into language that would be easily understandable in more modern day language and at a reading level that is more consumable by more people. So it really is an idea of making the big book more accessible, but to keep the message exactly the same as what it is now. They have put out a call for plain language professionals to submit work and are in the process of making some selections. A report that details all of the work that has been done this year is being forwarded to the Conference Committee on Literature. The Trustees Committee is committed to reporting out to the conference on a regular basis and also inviting input and feedback. So revisions to all of our literature, development of our literature, development of our policies, development of our public relations, all of that happens at the guidance at the hands of the General Service Conference. And that's coming up at the end of April. So they will be getting a report from the plain language subcommittee. They will be getting a report from the fifth edition subcommittee. They will be getting a report from the Spanish work group, right? And so that is their opportunity to make suggestions, loving suggestions, or just give us feedback. There will be lots of opportunities across the service structure In many delegate areas, the delegates find ways of sharing what's on the agenda with the membership at large. So here in North Carolina, for example, we have three pre-conferences, which anyone can go to. Any You don't have to be a part of the service structure. You don't have to have a role. You don't have to be a GSR or DCM. You can just be a member who wants to weigh in and learn more and offer perspectives and let your delegate know what you think. So if you have concerns, then I encourage you to find your delegate, find your district and find out from your district committee member when the assemblies are, when the pre-conferences are, when the various gatherings are and and go and, and use your voice because everyone's voice is important. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.